Hello, hello, it's Heidi. Welcome today for a very special video. I have to admit, I'm a little bit nervous about sharing this with you today. And uh, wow, just I want to take a deep breath. <sighs> I was looking for something earlier that I need to tell this story to you today. And for whatever reason, I couldn't find it. So I was like, ha, there it is. There's the sign that I'm not supposed to tell this story today. And really, I was looking for any kind of excuse. Why? Because this isn't easy to talk about. This stuff is not easy to talk about. In fact, most people are not talking about it. They don't know where to go, who to turn to, and it's just, I know that it's going to be emotional for me to even talk to you guys about it, but the thing is, is that it's a necessary thing to talk about because we're not talking about it and people are kind of like walking around scratching their heads wondering left what to do and how to survive. Now I've been telling this story, it's not the first time I've told this story, I've been telling this story through when I created and ran the family program for over seven years at one of the world's leading drug and alcohol treatment centers, but I did that in a private setting. I did that behind closed doors with the families that would come every single month to be with my, me and my husband, we did it together. This is the first time that I'm sharing this story publicly and I'm doing it because I'm taking that family program globally um, with an online version and so I, I want I'm gonna have to be willing to talk about the things that are difficult and that are hard and um, and today's one of those days so I just want to thank you for being here with me and um, you know just being willing to be a witness to me um, sharing my pain with you and my story with you so that in the hopes that it'll inspire you to do things differently. You know, I don't do things the way that most people do them. I, I kind of pride myself on that. I've been a person of like wanting to do things differently. And um, this isn't a story about Al-Anon. You know, Al-Anon is great and Al-Anon works for a lot of people and Al-Anon saves people's lives, that's for sure. But this is less of a story of detaching and more of a story of how to love. The people that I get to work with don't want to like detach from their family. They want to be with their family. They want to learn how to be in relationship with them. Thanks for the love, guys. They want to learn how to be with them. They want to learn how to stand beside them, but not sign up and be around for all the craziness, but they want to learn how to be in it um, because they love their loved one with our whole heart. So you can see why this is so important that we change the conversation around how we deal with our addicted loved ones and how we can help ourselves through the process but also be with them at the same time. So I'm gonna to talk to you today about a story about my own father in my own life. And you know, I, I'm just, I'm honored to be able to share it with you because I know that through this story, uh, my dad is, because I know, because I've told to tell the story at the family program and hundreds of times would say, Heidi, that's the thing that you told me that changed my perspective. That was the thing that you shared with me that opened my eyes and set me free. And so I know that my dad continues to change lives every time I tell you this story. So um, here we go. Thanks for the love and for the support. So I didn't know I was going to be this emotional telling you this today. I know you feel my pain, though, don't you? Because you are in the same situation, aren't you? Aren't you? You're in the same situation. So you understand the level of hurt and, and pain and frustration and conf confusion and 
worry and lack of peace and up all night and like just praying to God to make it stop because it's ruining your life. Like, you know, they say that, thank you guys. They say that, um, you know, addiction is a family disease and people like really get that wrong. You're like, yeah, you're born with it. Granddaddy's an alcoholic. You're going to be an alcoholic. And that's not what that means. 50% of people who are addicted have it in their family tree and 50% of people don't have it at all. And that's why those families are like, where did they get this from? It doesn't come from my side of the family. Well, it didn't come from anybody's side of the family because anybody can become an addict at any time and any point in their lives. What it means when we say it's a family disease is that the whole family suffers. You know, like we think that it's just impacting the person who's experiencing it, but that's not the truth. You know that everybody is affected and impacted. If you have children, even your aunt Connie, who lives in Topeka, Kansas, feels the impact of the addiction, even though she's not there. Everybody is impacted by this. And so it's really important. There's lots of support for the addicts and alcoholics. There's treatment centers every five seconds. There's online things. There's, but where is everybody else? Where's the help for everybody else? And if you don't line up with a specific philosophy of Al-Anon or somewhere else, you're really stuck and you have nowhere to go. And that is the worst position to be in, especially if you don't want to talk to your friends about it, if you don't want to tell them what's going on and you're, you know, you don't want anybody to know. So, you know, it's my intention to break that silence, to be the person, whether you're watching this live or you don't even want to watch it. You don't want people to see you're watching it. So you're not commenting. I don't, it's, I got you, honey. I understand. You know, if you want to watch the replay and quiet with your earplugs and nobody knows you're watching it, that's cool. It doesn't matter to me. You don't need to chime in. I appreciate you doing it. I will answer all these questions at the end and I will come back in the replay and I will answer questions. Or if you don't want to talk about it, I get it. Go in my inbox, my love, and I will go in there and answer questions after this. I'm committed to that, okay? So everybody's impacted, right? We all know, like, we think our family kind of just is like who they are. But the reality is everybody in the family dynamic is just playing like a, like addiction is the play of life. And we all have our roles that we play in this play of life. And, like, one person will be the um, – we're familiar with the enabler, right? And that's the one that like sweeps everything under the rug and kind of makes it comfortable for the person to keep using and pretends, are they drunk? I have no idea. I didn't see him drink today. Is he drinking? He's like falling down the stairs, peeing in his own pants. It's like, is he drinking? <laughs> you know, ridiculous, right? And but, but they do that because they don't want to rock the boat. They're afraid that if they call it out, that all of a sudden that it, it, everything's going to blow up. So they just kind of, oh, no, it's not that bad. Or they justify or rationalize or minimize the, the, the loved one, the, the addicts, you know, reasoning. Well, you know, they do have anxiety. They need the weed, you know, that kind of a thing, okay? So then there's um, the scapegoat. And that's the kid like, you know, dad's drinking. And this is the kid like out like, you know, vandalizing properties and like, you know, smoking weed and getting in trouble at school. And then the addict goes, ah, you know, Johnny's the problem, right? Because they're acting out all the trauma drama. And then there's the lost kid that's like up in their room playing video games or reading books. And they don't even want to talk about it because they're like, nobody's going to meet my needs. So why bother having any? So I'm just going to hide and pretend that, that none of this is real, right? Then you have the clown and they're the person that makes the jokes and everything's funny all the time and lightening the mood because it can't be that, they can't have it be that serious or they'll cry themselves to death. So they make jokes about it instead. And then there's the hero. And that's the one I want to talk to you about today. Now, there's a fine line between an enabler and a hero. An enabler wants to pretend it's not happening. A hero wants to fix the shit. 
Okay, they want to solve the problems. They want to go in. They want to. They know how to fix it. They know what to do, and they're the ones that they want to take charge of everything. But as if you're a kid and you grow up in that environment, you don't quite start out wanting to fix it and knowing that's what you want to do. But it evolves into that. So I'm going to share with you a story about my journey in my alcoholic dynamic, family dynamic as the hero, and talk to you about how that story ended up. Along the way, you're gonna see yourself in the story, I promise you. I want you to be listening for um, not what you, me telling you what to do, okay? I want you to listen for do what am I doing? Because most people in addiction aren't doing what they believe in. They're doing what they feel like they have to do and so that person doesn't die. They're not doing what they believe in. They're just keeping their head above water. Today's the day, my love, that you're going to switch over from doing what you feel like you've had to do to keep the thing going to only doing what you believe in. And I, today, am going to help you get crystal clear on what it is that you believe in. All right? <sighs> Amen. Hallelujah. Okay? <laughs> Thank you so much for the love. I think that's my husband giving me hearts. Baby, I love you. You're the man. So let's let's dive in. So I, I grew up in the backwoods of West Virginia where everything is like a cliff, right? And right on the border of West Virginia and Pennsylvania, and everything is like a cliff. And back in those days, they didn't believe in guardrails, okay? That was like a luxury that we couldn't have. And every it was like cliffs, like there's no guardrails, just like if you tumble over, you're dead, right? There, there's no and my dad never drove anywhere without a Miller light between his legs. And so if you if you got if you got the, the the shotgun position in the car, it worked like this. You would go through uh, the brass rail, okay, and get get the six pack and put it down beside your feet, and it'd be like cold, wet six pack at your feet. And he'd fumble around at your feet, and he'd grab the six pack, and he it'd be wet on your leg, and he'd pour it down, and he'd go, and he he'd down the beard. And for as long as it took him to down that beer, his eyes would come off of the road and he would just down it. And then you'd roll down your window back in these days and then he'd whip the beer past your head into the woods and then you'd get another beer. And he'd do that all six beers. And so I remember driving as a five-year-old in the backseat in the car with my dad feeling like I was going to die. Like in any minute, that's it. We're going to fall off the cliff. We're all going to die. We're going to be dead. So I invented a little game. I sat right behind my dad where I could see his head with the steering wheel, and I had a little imaginary brake, a little imaginary gas pedal, and I would steer the car from the back seat. And I played this game constantly. I pretend drove my whole entire childhood from the back seat, and I would just drive the car, and when I would turn the wheel, the wheel would turn. And I thought, whoa, I saved us. I saved this whole car from wrecking, but I just remember thinking, I've got to control this somehow, right? And I thought, well, if that worked, let me try other things too. So I, you know, I would go through the house and I would, I would find his hiding spots for his um, alcohol. And he hid it behind the toilet seat in the, in the um, bank of the seat, his vodka, or he hid it in the kitty litter. And I would take it and I would dump it out down the drain. And I was thinking, oh, I, I put it back empty, by the way, because I had this idea, like if he knew that I dumped that out and put it back empty, that he would, he would know that I did that. And he would feel so ashamed of himself and so like love me so much that he would just like agree to never drink again because he knew he was breaking my heart, right? So a couple days later, sure enough, that bottle would be full again. And what do you think I thought as a little like 10-year-old kid, you know? I thought, well, I got to try harder. Sometimes he would do all his beer cans in a little brown paper bag and I would take out those beer cans. And my dad was like a functioning alcoholic. So as long as he was going to work, 
everything was okay, right? But he would drink, drink, drink when he got home, you know, um, go to sleep, wake up, go to work, drink, 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 go home, you know, go to work. And so I would line up the beer cans at the bottom of the steps, like make a beer tower house. And I thought, well, surely he'll come down the stairs, be confronted by his alcohol and be embarrassed. And he won't, because he doesn't realize what he's doing and he won't want to drink again. You know, sometimes that worked where he wouldn't drink that much. And then I thought, yeah, of course, you know, I control the universe. I remember one day, you know, I, I always felt like if I just was smart enough, good enough, got the right grades at school, that I wouldn't stress my dad out enough so that he wouldn't need to drink. Like I would think, well, maybe the house isn't clean enough. You know, maybe he's fighting. You know, maybe, maybe I just clean the house up. Maybe he won't want to drink. Maybe if I stop everybody from arguing and fighting, like like he just won't want to drink. If he, if it, the house is prettier, you know, I would think all these things of what can I do to get my dad. Not that I have any control over my dad's drinking, but but I'll tell you what, a five year old is narcissistic. They think the world revolves around them and everything is their fault and their responsibility. But one day. I was about 13 years old and I'll never forget this. My dad came into the um, room where I was sitting. He sat down and he said, Rain, he never called me Heidi. He always called me Rain my whole life. He said, Rain, you're the glue that holds this family together. And I remember the pride that welled up in me. And I was like, yes, I'm the glue. Dun, da, da, da. I fix everything and I can fix you and I can fix all of this. And I got addicted to this identity of wanting to be the fixer and the peacekeeper and the problem solver. And I could see things on the wall, the writing on the wall before they would go bad. And I would like try to divert the crisis in order just to keep the household together and make dad not drink. So clearly it was ineffective, right? Clearly my dad continued to drink, right? But that achiever in me, that fixer, that wanting to just be good enough was like set into motion. And I started out, you know, oh, well, guess what? I guess now I need to continue to prove my value and continue to be as good as I possibly can so that dad doesn't drink or so that whatever doesn't fall apart and let me become an overachiever. I started climbing corporate ladders and I would go home and I would say, dad, you know, I'm just got this, um, I'm going to London for three months. I'm going to run this big corporation. You know, I'm just moving to Dallas. And my dad would be like, oh, that's great, honey. Um, what are you, what are you doing now? What do you do? And like, I remember my whole life just thinking like, God, I just wish my dad could like see me. You know, I just wish he could like see what I'm doing, what I'm accomplishing. And I would take his inability to see me personally. And I would make it about me. And I would be like, holy shit, you know, I mean, if he was like a real dad, like he would be proud of me, like he would see what I'm accomplishing. And so behind closed doors, that was never enough, right? All the accomplishing goals, the move, the, the flying all over the world, running companies wasn't enough. And behind closed doors, I had my own problems. I was a binge drinker, okay? I was a binge drinking alcoholic, like drink up. You know, I used to get drunk and be like, I don't want to be like my father. And I, I'm like, I am my father, you know, drunk, right? I turned into that and mirrored it because I couldn't heal it in my father. I created it in myself to heal it some Okay, that's that's what happens. Why do you become what you didn't want to become? Because you need to. You, you, there's a there's a strong desire in you to heal it, and the only person you know you can heal is you. Okay, so I was still drinking and drunk at this time, but I was living in Los Angeles and I was running a company in LA, and I got a call that my dad was going to go into treatment. What do you think I thought as soon as I got that call that my dad was going to go into treatment? I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have the dad I always wanted. 
oh my God, all my man problems are going to end because now I'm going to have like a dad. I'm not going to have daddy issues anymore. Like, holy shit. Like, I... So my dad goes into treatment and I what? Dun, 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 get on the first plane, fly home. And I got to work. My dad lived in a ramshackle shickety shack on the top of a hill, Miller Hill, ironically enough. Okay. It's kind of not, but whatever. And lived in this shack and it was like flea market fabulous. Okay. You know what that, you know, Hey, look, I love a good flea market. Okay. But I'm talking about like dusty flowers with like a ramshackle shickety table with like one leg and like a doily on the shit and a Tiffany lamp, like, but beer stains on the carpet and nicotine on the walls and the kerosene heater where he caught the house on fire with the kerosene heater when he was drunk was like stained on the tile. Okay. So when he went into treatment, what do you think I did to the house? That's right. I got busy. I ripped up carpet. I painted the walls. I get all the smoke off the thing. And I, I mean, I was like hustling, man. I was like out on the ground, you know, pulling weeds and like, you know, uh, sanding things and like everything that I could possibly think of to keep my dad's. I was like, cause I knew I was like, well, he can't come back to this shit house. Right. Like he, he, like, and then I went through and I dumped out all the pill bottles and I, I dumped out all the alcohol and all the remnants and made it smell delicious and got the Yankee candle business happening and did everything that I could do to make sure. And of course, by the way, I would paint the house and then chase it down with two bottles of wine. Okay. I mean, that's what I was doing, right? I would like drink myself, but, but it's my dad's problem, not mine. <laughs> so I sat back after I'd scrubbed the house down, did everything I needed to do, you know, up, you know, ripped up the carpets, man, made it gorgeous, put real flowers. Hello. Thank you. In the place. And then I sat back and I was like, he's going to stay sober now. Look at that. I mean, I'm, it's like, I'm a miracle worker. I mean, clearly I looked up all the meetings. I knew exactly where he should go. Who could, you know, I, I would go with him. I wasn't into that kind of thing because I didn't want to be sober, but I, I would go with him to the meetings or whatever. And then all of a sudden my dad comes out of treatment and it's like 24 hours out of treatment. And he's, he's going to go wash the car. That was, I knew what wash the car meant. And he came back and I knew as soon as he stepped out of the car, I knew how many beers he had because he had a particular beer walk. And I know, you know what I'm talking about. You could pretend that you don't know when somebody's doing the enabler pretends not to know. Okay. And sometimes love is blind. They really don't know, but the hero always knows when somebody's fucked up. Okay. You got a radar the size of Texas. You're like, you've had two drinks. Uh, you've had a shot. Uh, you smoked the pipe. Like you just know what's going on with people. And he got out of the car and he sure as shit, he had relapsed within 24 hours. So what do you think I thought? Thanks for the love. I know you know what I'm talking about. What do you think I thought as soon as he relapsed 24 hours out? Yeah, that I did a shit job. I didn't do what I needed to do in order to keep my dad sober. So we then go to the family program. It's about a week later. We go to the family program and we're going around and he goes, hi, uh, my name is Tim and I'm uh, 37 days sober. And everybody in the whole place was like, wow, was so amazing. And like his therapist was like, <laughs> he was drunk. He was drunk at inside the family program and like the hero came out and I wanted to be like, did you go to school? Like, uh, do you have a license? Uh, is this your first trip uh, around the planet? Uh, like, uh, you know, does anybody know what the hell are doing around here? And I was tempted to like call it out and do whatever. But in that moment, I don't know, something else came over me and I said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I can't constantly follow my dad around 
when I'm a mess behind myself, behind closed doors, you know, I have my own problems that I'm dealing with, but I'm focusing on it. So I just said, I got it. I can't do this anymore. And I left. And I said, I set a boundary with my dad and this was it. It wasn't, I don't want to be around you anymore. I don't want to be with you anymore. It was dad. I love you so much, but I only want to be around you when you're sober. So if you're drinking or I get the cue that you're drunk or something, I'm going to lovingly say to you, dad, that's my cue. I got to go. Now, when I was a little younger, I would say things like, dad, you can't come over if you're going to drink on Christmas because you're going to ruin it. And if he would drink on Christmas, I would let him stay, but just be pissed off that he drank on Christmas. Okay. That's not a boundary. That's an ultimatum that you don't mean. A boundary is for you not to change somebody else's behavior. An ultimatum is to change them. A boundary is to protect you. So I said, I love you, but I can't witness this anymore because it makes me crazy. So I love you so much. So I'm just not going to be around for that. Okay. So that was that. And then I went and I said, now, what do I want to do? Because that was like, do I want to be sober? You know, because now that I'm not focused on his problems anymore. So that I got sober. And about a year later, I started working at the treatment center. My husband worked for Tony Robbins, and he got recruited to come teach those modalities, the Tony Robbins, you know, change your life, create a life worth being sober for, wah, into the treatment center. And I started teaching at the treatment center. And here I am now, wow, I get to do this for my living. I get to help other people recover and get better. And then we created the family program and did all these wonderful things. And so I would go home to my dad and I would say, hey, dad, you know, because he, he was still drunk and he'd be like, oh, what are you doing right now? You're in Florida. Yeah. And I'd be like, yeah, dad, you know, I'm, I'm working in treatment. I'm sober, you know, and he'd be like, that's great. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you, right? You know, because when I used to drink, he would say, you drink too much. And I mean, when I was drunk, I'd be like, yeah, nobody wants to hear that from a hypocrite, right? So I would say to him, you know, you can come to treatment anytime. But I knew I couldn't force him. I couldn't do whatever. So I just let it go. And years passed. Years passed and years passed. And then I got a call that he was dying, okay, that he was in the hospital. He had cracked ribs and a pneumonia. And I said to everybody, now, again, this is like, is it enabling, right? Is it enabling to go, I'm going to get on a plane, and I'm going to come up to West Virginia, and I'm going to put you on a plane and pretend we're going on vacation to Florida, and then I'm going to march back to you into treatment. Is that enabling? No, no. Enabling is supporting addiction. Helping is supporting recovery. Okay. So I'm not going to be like, yeah, let, let me drive you to get, and I have families that do that. I'd be like, you're too junk to drive. You're drunk. Give me the keys. I'll drive you to get sheets to get your beer. You know what I mean? Like I, that's enabling. Okay. Uh, no, uh, he can't come to work because um, he has a dentist appointment and he's hungover. Okay. That's enabling. Getting somebody to treatment is helping is doing what you believe in okay so I was prepared to get on the plane and do like a little sneak attack and get and get my dad into treatment but I didn't have to because guess what happened he had retired he was 62 he had retired and he's, his drinking took a turn for the worse and so I didn't have to do anything guys because when people really are at that place and you hold their feet to the fire and and people had said look you have to go into treatment some people did some orchestrating because sometimes nobody, they'll come when they're ready listen nobody's ready to go okay please do you think people really want to come you know what I want to do I want to spend 30 days in a hole with a bunch of other assholes and uh, and talk about my stuff no nobody wants to do that okay sometimes thank you yes sometimes you have to like go hey you're gonna go or this is going to happen. You know what I mean? Because we love you and you're going to die. So let's get you the help that you need. So everybody had done that and he came into treatment. I'm working in the treatment center. I'm a teacher. I'm one of the, I'm a life coach and I'm a teacher in the treatment center. 
wow, my dad is in the walls of my treatment center where I'm a teacher. Is this like a full circle fucking moment? Like what planet am I on? Like I can't even wrap my head around it. So my dad said, and it's freezing upstairs in the auditorium where we teach. So I went out and I bought him a little blue hoodie stretch sweatshirt. Is that enabling? And people be like, yeah, why'd you buy him a sweatshirt? Because he's cold. Okay. Like we take all this like enabling and we go, yeah, just shit. Fuck you. You know what I mean? We, we did, and that's not how it's supposed to be. Like when people get better, that's when we turn our backs on them. You know, there's a fine line. I get it. And I help people decipher what those lines are, what you believe in. I believe that a man should have a hoodie when he's chilly. I went and bought my dad cigarettes when he was in treatment. Okay, I spent a lot of money on cigarettes. Why? Because at the time I was a smoker and I believed a man should have a ciggies. Okay, so what do you believe in? I don't know. It's different than what I believe in, but I'm not going to play this blanket role. Like, nope, cut him off. Shit. Smoke something, I don't care. Just go through more withdrawing, you know. That's not how I roll, okay? I, I'm a lover. I want to support recovery. Now, if I was a non-smoker and hate and cancer survivor, I probably wouldn't buy him cigarettes, would I? Okay? So anyway, the first class I had my dad in was called a class that I taught called Adult Children of Alcoholics. Can somebody, can somebody witness what I'm saying to you? I taught a class called Adult Children of Alcoholics, and my father, that I was the adult child of the alcoholic, was in my class as a student. So I thought to myself, what am I going to do today? So I had everybody. Well, let me tell you this, first of all. How tempted do you think I was to go to my dad before I was a teacher to say, well, who's your therapist going to be? I mean, where'd they go to school? And uh, How long have they been, you know? licensed and uh, who's your roommate and I was very tempted to do this again to control his treatment but I so so what do you think I really wanted my whole life do I want did I want to be like you know the savior of my father um, no I, I wanted to be the savior in a way so that I could have the relationship with him because that's what I crave the most so I was at a crossroads in my life at that moment when he checked into the treatment center where I taught I could be teacher you know psychological surgeon, you know what I mean? I could do all those things that I wanted to do, or I could be the thing, the person that I wanted to be my entire life, which was daughter. And what do you think I chose? Daughter. In that moment, everything shifted for me when I stopped trying to be the treatment center, the detox, the life coach, the sponsor, the therapist. And that's what a hero tries to be for people. And I said, I just want to be the daughter and said, so what did that look like? That looked like going on the patio with my dad when he was smoking cigarettes and shooting the shit with him for an hour. That looked like meeting him every day downstairs before he came up. Doug and I had this dance party club rehab every morning where we get people like pumped. I mean, it was a crazy time in our lives. And he would come upstairs, and my dad didn't like the techno music, but he would do this, like, his creepy four corners dance that he did, and I would do it with him, you know. And I just was a daughter. I just enjoyed every second because for the first time, I remember sitting on the patio with my dad when he was smoking a cigarette. And I remember we were talking one day, and he said to me, uh, he said, wow, he said, uh, he said, oh, yeah, you know, I met that guy, that, that roommate guy, and you were talking about him yesterday, and that's the guy, and he started like connecting dots, and I was like, I just remember sitting there thinking, holy shit, he remembers yesterday. Wow, he remembers. Like I could have a conversation. I remember my dad looking in my eyes for the first time in my entire life, and um, he saw me. He saw me. And I didn't have to be like, 
ran into the rescue. I didn't have to, I just had to be present for when he was sober. I just had to be present. Okay. And I remember just soaking that up every moment. And I remember one day he came to me outside and he said, Heidi, you know, wow, everybody is like really, you know, uh, talks about you all the time and they say that you changed their lives. And uh, I just, I, I, and, and I just remember feeling in that moment, everything I've ever wanted from my dad happened in that time frame. you know? As soon as he checked in, he goes, wow, 30 days rain. Woo, that seems like a long time. And I just, I was tempted to go, what are you talking about? Are you nuts? You need to stay for like a year in treatment. But I didn't want to play halfway house sponsor, therapist, life coach. I said, wow, okay, well, whatever. Because it wasn't my job anymore. My job was to soak up the time that I had with him when he was sober. My job was to be present with him in the moment, not to dictate what was going to happen in the future. Believe me, it was not easy. When he first got into treatment, I was like obsessed with waiting for the relapse. Like, how long is this going to last? You know, living in the future, like anxious and full of upset. And I had to like learn how to cultivate this ability to live in the present moment. Now it's my area of brilliance with my clients. I teach them how to be with their loved one now here and not get sucked into the mania of like the past or the future. But I had to learn that. I had to go through it firsthand. A, a leader can only take a follower as far as they go on themselves. I'm sorry, but you cannot teach what you do not know and you do not know what you do not live. Okay, so... I'm grateful. And anyway, the first class I had him in was adult children of alcoholics. And let me tell you something. I had them draw a picture of how they felt about themselves inside of their family. And this was the thing I was looking for for you to tell you the story today. And I couldn't find it. But I, I have it in my in some. So this is the picture my dad drew. Can you see it? You probably can't see it the best. But this is a picture of him on an island over here with his hands in the air with a frowny face. And this is a ship. And it's his uh, his family on the ship sailing away from him. So this is the picture that he draws. And he comes up in front of the room and he shares it with everybody. And, of course, I'm like, you know, what do you think when you see that picture of, of, of him on the island, you know, and that's his addiction in the family? I, I, I probably would have seen the same thing, right? Like, oh my God, like he's stranded. Like get the freaking boat, man, turn it around, like swim, like drown basically. Like a, you know, drown in the water, trying to get him to the, the boat, right? Pick him up for him, swim, swim, you know? But again, that's not my job. That's not my role to swim it for him. I can't, I can't swim it for him. But, but, what do you see when you see him like sad, depressed, you know, but the reality is that role of my hands are in there and there's nothing I can do is actually the role of the victim. And that is the role that the addict or alcoholic plays when they're actively in their disease is the victim. And they say, I can't do it. I can't do anything without you. There's no way I can, you know, and it, it, going it alone is true. You can't go it alone necessarily, but you're the wrong person to do it because you ain't the coach. You ain't the sponsor. And, and I am a qualified addiction professional, a life coach, a master life coach, a master practitioner of NLP for crying out loud. I can certainly help my dad, not my job. Even though he was inside my treatment center, I'm a daughter not anything else. And so what if that water on that island to the is just like three feet deep and that water is recovery? He could walk. What's my job as a family member on the boat? It's not to go the backstroke. <laughs> the back. <laughs> You're gonna get tired. You look like a dead chicken. You look like a you look like an idiot. Like you can't swim like that. Like that's not gonna work. You need something else. That's not my job. My job is to go, wow, good swimming. 
fantastic. It's not my job to criticize the way he's swimming or how that recovery. Sometimes you want to criticize you and be like, you should be good at more meetings. Like, what are you doing? Like, the, you need a sponsor? Good luck. Like, that's not your job. It's his job to figure out how to swim so he can be proud of himself when he makes it to the boat. My job as a family member is to go keep it up. Awesome job. Way to go. I believe in you. Okay. And then detach from the outcome. Is throwing him a dinghy, or you can't throw a dinghy, can you? A, a donut, you know, throwing him, is that enabling? People be like, yes, make him swim. Don't throw the donut. Just sit over there and watch it. Honey, if you got a donut, you better throw that freaking donut. Okay, if you got a dinghy, you better shoot it on over. What is the dinghy? Life coaching. What is the support net? Therapy. What, is, what are the things that you can provide as a family member? Yes, these are the things, right? But not swimming it for them. Provide the resources and then detach from the outcome. Okay, that's how you do it. 60 days went by when my dad was in treatment and my dad was like, wow, 60 days, oh, it's time to go. You know, my dad stayed 90 days in treatment, 90 days in treatment. And I'm going to tell you something. I savored every single moment of it. I took him out on a boat. We went fishing. That's me and him on the boat. We went on a, um, he never went out on one of these boats before. I took him out there and we had the best time ever. But I remember we were on this boat and he said to me, um, I wanted to go to dinner afterwards and he was like, yeah, well, I'm kind of tired. I want to go back. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me right now? Do you know how many drunk dinners I sat through with you where you did like calling the waiter over and embarrassing me and just waiting for the shit show to start? You better, you owe me a sober dinner. But I didn't because the reality is when people get sober, they are uncomfortable. They're awkward. They're like we suddenly put all these expectations like how who this person is supposed to be when they're better. But a lot of times what they're they're better, but they were medicating other things, awkwardness, debilitating anxiety, depression, that now we expect all the, I had a dad in a family program one time, he was like, oh, I can't wait till my boy gets better because I'm going to tell you what, he's going to get off that weed, he's going to stop smoking, he's going to be productive, he's going to do some shit, he's going to, he's going to find his calling in life, and you know that boy stopped smoking weed and was lazy as hell. Okay, nothing changed. It was like the, the weed was like, so he could shut his dad up. You know what I mean? Like, so he didn't have to hear it anymore. So people are really who they are and they're medicating a multitude of things. So sometimes I've had women in the family program raise their hand and be like, um, I like them better drunk. And that's real for them. They actually are enjoy their families more when they're a little fucked up than when they're well because they're easier to deal with and manage. Not all the time, of course. I mean, it's crazy too. Some families are like, oh God, no, please don't think I'm sober, awkward, you know? But the point is, is that when people are on their journey, we have to let it look like whatever it's going to look like. It's not going to look what we think it's supposed to look like. And we cannot get attached because, again, we're not the fixer. We're not the doer. We are just the wife, the mother, the friend, the father, the lover, the child. We are not responsible for anything else. But we are responsible for loving them fiercely and fervently in our role and holding their feet to the fire when we need to and not tolerating um, and co-signing and supporting their addiction but supporting their recovery instead, okay? So I remember the day that um, I had a talk with my father. We got and went to therapy. He had a wonderful therapist who I'm still friends with to this day. And she sat us down at therapy. She said, hey, is there anything that you guys want to talk about? And I said, uh, Dad, I don't think you should go home after treatment. You've been an alcoholic your whole life. I think you should go into halfway. And he goes, I'm not. Not going into halfway is like a stepping stone, right? And be like a sober home and things like that. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going into halfway. I said, Well, Dad, I, I, I have to tell you so I can sleep at night. I know I can't force you to do anything, but I'm going to tell you, I think that home is still toxic for you. Okay, I think that home. If you go home and you start drinking, you're just, you're not going to go to meetings. It's not going to work, you know. 
and uh, you're not going to work a program or do whatever you need to do. And he was like, Rain, he said, I'm 62. Uh, I'm not going to halfway. I said, okay, dad, you know, but I could sleep at night knowing what I said to him was, dad, I believe if you do not go into halfway, if you go home, you'll die. I said that to him. He said, honey, I, I'm scared and I appreciate what you're saying, but I'm going home. I had no control. I could provide the resources, the tools, the belief, the hope, but nothing else. The day my dad commenced, I'll never forget it, the power went out. And I was like, holy shit, of course the power goes out the day my dad's commencing. Um, but I lit candles, we had a little boom box. It was like, I'm saying anything, I'm saying over the boom box. And we had, um, I bought him a little ship. I went out to the store and I bought him a little ship that looked just like the ship that he drew in this picture, right? And I presented it to him on the day he commenced and I said, dad, now you're the captain of your own ship. You know, now you don't have to worry about being abandoned. Now you're driving the ship. And we were all bawling our eyes out. Everybody was crying. It was like so unbelievably amazing. And um, and then he went home. And I and I and I remember December 30th at 630 in the morning, two months after he had gone home. And I got the call that he was gone. I don't know if you've lost a parent or you've lost a loved one, but that's real. And when I was working within those walls, we lost hundreds of people. Thousands came through. But my dad was the toughest, obviously. And I remember, now look, in that moment, I could say to myself, what could I have done differently? What should I have done? Should I have uh, gone home and followed him to aftercare? Should I have taken him to meetings? Should I have like sat beside the side to him? And I'm not delusional enough to think that I am God, that I could have controlled that situation, that I could have rescued or saved him. But I know that God gave me three sober months with my father and that was enough for me in my entire lifetime because I was fully present in those three months. I wasn't worrying about if he was gonna relapse or die or what was gonna happen. I was with him, you understand my love? I was with him in the moments. And some of you have loved ones that are sober now that are with you and you're living in the past, reminding them of the hurt or shame. And I understand you're hurt. They're not the place to fix your pain, they caused it. Come to me, I'll help you process your pain so you can be present, okay? Not to live in the future and wonder what's going to happen. Are they going to relapse? They're sober now. It's like you batten up for hurricane season when you're in it, but when the hurricane passes, you take down the shutters and step into the light, okay? I do not regret a single moment with my father because every step of the way, I did exactly what I believed in with him. I was true to that. I sleep at night. I know that I followed my heart, that I got him the treatment, that I did everything I could do. Now, I'm going to tell you it would have been a very different conversation if I wouldn't have had the gift of having him in treatment. If I wouldn't have had the gift of having him come alongside me and be with me and teach me that gift of presence and that that gift of um, that I don't have any control really truly, that it all just is the journey and how I choose to experience it is up to me. There is no right way to experience this either, you know, because the reality is we do lose our loved ones. Um, and so some people say, I can't sign up for that period. I can't be around even for the good because I know it's inevitable and it's coming. That's okay. I give people permission and you don't need it from me, but they don't give it to themselves. So I give it first, right? Just to love your loved one, how you see fit and how you believe is going to be the best for everybody at the end of the day, right? And so I just want to encourage you 
be present with your loved one, do what you believe in, and hopefully this story has inspired you and changed your perspective a little bit about the level of control that you actually do have. You do need tools how to navigate though. I wanna be the one to help give them to you. I'm equipped to do that beyond measure, understanding boundaries, understanding addiction, all the latest neuroscience, I can give that to you, but most importantly, I can feel you because I understand exactly what that's like, okay? So together, let's work together. Let's figure out the best way. Not everybody does. There's lots more success stories than there are people who've passed, okay? Mine just happens to end that way, but yours doesn't have to. Let me check in with you on your comments here. I miss you too, <laughs> Joseph, sweetheart. Yeah, Melinda says, maybe if I just... I know, it was so crazy having him in treatment. So crazy. Thank you, Cassidy, I really appreciate that. Thank you. You guys, I love you so much. Hi, Viv, I love you. You're a beautiful woman. I'm glad I crossed paths with you too. I'm gonna come back in here and I'm gonna read these comments and reply to them. And as you can understand, I'm probably just gonna take a little bit of a break after telling you the story because of course I never really you always remember it, you know, the pain doesn't go away, it just transforms and morphs. And my, luckily I've turned my pain into purpose. My pain is channeled into purpose and that's enough for me. I love you. I'll see you in another one. Bye.